All right, so we're so yeah, we're we're going through this we're going through this series called poetic justice, and this is what poetic justice means. Um, I guess at least that's how this how this website defined it. It says the purpose of poetic justice in literature is to adhere to the universal code of morality, in that virtue triumphs vice. The idea of justice in literary text manifests the moral principles that virtue deserves reward and vices earn punishment. In addition, readers often identify with the good characters. They feel emotionally attached to them and feel for them when they suffer at the hands of the wicked characters. Naturally, readers want the good characters to triumph and be rewarded, but they equally wish the bad characters to be penalized for their evilness. Thus, poetic justice offers contentment and resolution. And, and this type of literary device, we see this, how God plays it out through the story of mankind, of humanity, of this world. Because what we get here in scripture is how God really shows us how virtue triumphs vice, how good beats evil, how God will indeed defeat sin and evil will be punished and is meant to bring us contentment and resolution. And that's what we find when we study God's judgment. And what we see here is that justice often cannot be defined without morals. And when we talk about morals, we're talking about morality, that itself also cannot be defined without any kind of objective truth. Because what indeed is morality if it's not connected to truth? And so we're to connect justice to morals and morals to truth. And what we see here is that we cannot accurately define justice without God. God is required. In other words, theology is required for us to truly understand what is just in this world. Our society claims that justice um, seeks to claim that they are looking for justice and that justice is what they're, they're, they're fighting for. But their justice is not built upon moral truth claims, not on this objective truth. They tend to define morality and justice on the basis of their own personal preference and emotions. And when we think about this, we think about our therapeutic culture today, the, this, this analyzation of what does it mean to be just, we, we come to see that their, their understanding of morality is a little bit off. And I'm, I'm talking about all this because I want us to get a good understanding of where I'm going with this, why we're talking about God's judgment so much. Uh, Carl Truman, he wrote a book, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And this is what he says, this is what he writes in there, talking about one of the, I think one of the philosophers he's, he's been, he was engaging with, he says this, the, the only moral criterion that can be applied to behavior is whether it conduces to the feeling of well-being in the individual's concern. Ethics, therefore, becomes a function a feeling. So that's what he says what's going on in society. Society is making a moral criterion based upon the feeling of well-being for each individual. Now, the issue here is on the definition of morality and ethics. But as Christians, we can agree that 
well-being is important. The feeling of well-being is important. We we all want to feel good. I think that there's something we can say. Yes, there's a moral good to feeling happy. There is indeed a moral good to feeling joyful, right? We cannot deny that. Um, and, and so we we can we can say yes, that's true. But when we talk about morality, that cannot be defined by individual choice. But that's exactly what our society is doing. And so taking this understanding of morality, this is then what he says about what's going on. Um, causing this emo, uh, I didn't even look at how to pronounce this, emotivism, I'm guessing. Emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments and more specifically, all moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling insofar that they are moral or evaluative evaluative in character emotive emotivism is a theory not of meaning but of use is about how we use moral concepts in moral language and what we what we get here is that when we start basing our justice our morals upon emotions it becomes we start to lose an aspect of exactly what is a judgment, what exactly is equal, what exactly is fair. And, and the problem is not just the meaning of it, but it's how we even use then that language, right? The, the point here is that morality is, is, when we're talking about morality and it's defined, if we define morality as individual preferences, then how you judge someone's moral character is based on whether or not that person agrees with your preference. That's how, that's because the criterion upon which we judge others. But, but that assumes this type of thinking assumes one huge presupposition that we as human beings are sinless, that we have sinless preferences. But that goes against everything that the Bible teaches us because the scripture tells us, the Bible tells us that we are sinful beings. We are beings with a moral compass that's tainted, that's not pointing true north. Humans are sinful, but God is holy. And what that means is that without God, we can't have justice. And God is the one that helps us understand justice better and so when we study god's judgments it actually helps us understand humanity as a whole what does it mean to be human what does it mean to have these emotions these opinions these preferences and then what does it mean then to cast moral judgments about what's going on around us even what's going on in our own, own hearts god is the one that helps us to find this and without god it's almost impossible to really truly have a good definition of justice. And so what that means is that justice belongs to God and God alone. Justice is what brings God glory. And it's also what comforts his people. And so that's what we'll come to see then as we wrap up our series here. Take your Bibles, turn me to Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3, looking then at verses 8 to 19. Nahum chapter 3, found towards the Middle Bible in your minor prophets, after Micah, before Habakkuk. Nahum chapter 3, verses 8 to 19. Here we will see how God's justice, God's judgment, reveals 
the weakness and fragility of this world and demonstrates the power and sustainability of God. The long passage, I'll read as we go through it. Uh, but the first point is this, Nineveh's lack of defense. And we see this verse 8 to 12, it reads this, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength. Egypt too, and that without limits, put in the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees, like the first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Now, Nahum here first compares Nineveh to Thebes. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's, it's uh, Noaman. Noaman is a city of Thebes. It is a city located in Egypt. It's a great city. It was, the, it was, it was a great city that rose into prominence in, the, in 2100 B.C. Right, so this is so the book of Nahum, Nineveh. This is written probably scholars say around 640 BC. So this is you know a good amount of time, right? Thebes has been around, and it was a great city in Egypt. And like Nineveh, Thebes was barricaded by a great river, fortified by these huge walls, and Thebes was wealthy and prominent. It was a good city. It was a thriving city. It was really well defended. More than that, it says here that Thebes was surrounded by allies, right? We had here Cush, we have Egypt, we have Put, and we have Libyans. They're all allies surrounding the city, ready to help out the Egyptians if they were ever attacked. So they were surrounded by allies. And so what happened here is that the Egyptians who lived in Thebes, they grew comfortable. They thought they were impenetrable. That this city, no one can ever take it down. You know, the natural defenses, the allies nearby, the great walls that they built, they had all the defense in the world. No one can stop them. But what happened was that thieves eventually fell to the Assyrian Empire. And Nahum here is writing to Nineveh, the capital of the Syrian Empire. And so the Assyrian Empire, the Syrian army actually took over Thebes, actually invaded Thebes, took it down, and conquered the land. And that happened around 664 BC. So about 20 years earlier than around when this when Nahum was written. So this is at the height of the Syrian Empire. They were rising other and they were on the rise, they're getting stronger and stronger. And we see here a description of what happened to Thebes, right? In verse 10, it tells us here that the infants, the infants were dashed in pieces. This is a, this is a horrible imagery. We're talking about children killed at the streets, laying there dead. And it says here that the honor man 
lots were cast of great men were bound in chains. We see here that the nobles became slaves, became the common man, became went to captivity. All the riches, all the wealth, and all the power they accumulated over time, gone. This becomes a sobering scene for us. And as Nahum was describing this scene to Nineveh, showing them, hey, this is what happens to this great city, this city that you have once conquered. Now Nahum turns and says, verse 11, you also, you too are falling down this same road, this same trap of comfort and security of overconfidence yourselves. You also. Nineveh here has become drunk with power. And they thought themselves as indestructible, impenetrable. Nineveh, the great city of the Syrian Empire, thought that they were, they could not be conquered. But verse 11, Nahum punches in God's judgment upon Nineveh. You also will be drunken and you will go into hiding. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. They will stagger. They will become vulnerable. They will flee for their lives. And the defense the city walls will fail. The waters that they thought would defend them become suddenly the waters that overtake the city. Their defense will fail and the city will fall into the mouths of their invaders. We see here that Nineveh, in their, in their confidence and in, in their drunkenness of their own power, of their own self-esteem and pride, they're just becoming ripe becoming ripe for their enemies to overtake them. The application here is to see that no nation, no army can ever stand before God. None of it. No, and this is further to say that no human ability can compare to the strength and power of God. God is the only one who can say he's all-powerful with no weakness, no chink in his armor. You see, we so often forget just how feeble human strength and power truly is. Uh, we, we live here in America, and we struggle sometimes wondering with all these different things going on in our lives, and, and we, we're able to worry about you know, our futures, our careers, our monies, our homes, our bank accounts. We can worry about all that things because we, we take for granted that our nation is indeed strong in its military strength, right? We don't worry about some other nation coming in and invading us and conquering us. Right, And so we don't live in fear that we lived in more in fear of how then do we live a life here, a, a bountiful life, a wealthy life, a life full of riches. And, and we forget, we forget that our, our nation can indeed fall. It, it does indeed have holes in its armor and its defenses. 
uh, we, we see little bits in that, even what's going on this past week, right? The greatest military of our time, right? The, the U.S. Army going out there to, to the Middle East couldn't eliminate Taliban, a ragtag team of militia. That went on for two decades. And we're starting to see here how there's certain failures within even a great nation like our own nation. You see, well, what happens is that we, we can take for granted of, of the life that we're currently in. And what ends, up, what ends up going on in our own hearts is that we may end up feeling safe strong, even powerful within the confines of our own safety. But the question is this, what happens when that safety becomes disrupted? What happens when that safety suddenly gets rocked, gets shaken? What happens when you suddenly feel like your life is in danger? God here is showing us through the fall of Thebes, through the fall of Nineveh, that no human strength can stand up to him. No one can stand up to him. And this helps us become sober by our own lives. Thankful for the, each day that we get to live. Thankful for the blessings that we get to enjoy. Thankful for, eat, for the life that we get to have here. Thankful for all these things that we, we live a life that is full of God's blessing and care. And that really gives us no reason to grumble or complain. Because we indeed have a good God who has given us a good life. And as we take a look upon this passage here, and we even take a look upon what's going on in our world today, we see here that God's judgment brings us comfort and letting us know that while there's things going on in this world and people's understanding, our hearts break for that, we're also reminded of God's good care for us. And so here, Nineveh's lack of defense leads us to see and depend upon the strength, the power of God, the God who is all-powerful, the God who is able to do all things, and is even able to take down the most wicked and evil nations and armies out there. I mean, even when we talk about what's going on in Afghanistan, we mourn over the, the horrendous scenes going out there. We trust that God, the all-powerful God, they eventually will have to answer to as well so god's strength is what gives us courage what gives us confidence and what gives us comfort well as you see here in this passage that as the defenses fall and when our trust is in ourselves when the defenses fall what happens next is that we end up lacking courage we end up lacking the the, the vigor to defend ourselves the, the vigor and the the just the strength to, to fight back. We get this from verse 13. Verse 13 says, Behold, your troops are women in your midst. Now, this is not meant to degrade femininity. I mean, some of the strongest people I know are females, right? And, and so, but 
but what this year is showing us is that i mean just i guess talking about more in general about gender stuff you know in scripture when 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 there's certain things here that says you know you're 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 becoming more and more like woman tend to be at least in the old testament this is actually used a few times and it tends to be happening when people are carrying fear right and and this is, you know, for instance, Isaiah chapter 19, verse 16 says that in the day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts, um, before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And, and another example, Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 30, the warriors of Babylon have ceased fighting. They remain in their strongholds. Their strength failed. They have become women. Now, again, this is not to degrade women. But it is to show that there is indeed a, a difference in gender. There is indeed a distinction. And over the course of history, men tend to be the one that fought because physically they were stronger. And I, I, I go to a gym and I work out with both you know, men and women there. And, and, and as you know, if we're to get started anywhere where you know, no one's worked out before, if a woman and a man comes into our gym and works out, you know, yeah, sure, they might start off at the same, but usually the man builds up really fast. It's just there's there's the the you know the the, the way that the, the human body was built allows the man to, to build strength faster and stronger. And it just tends to it does just this is just biological. This is the way that God has created man and woman. And so this is again just just to say that this is what's happening here that your troops here before this great enemy, before this great invader coming in, you have now become weak. You have your strength no longer matches up to them. And so you cower in fear before them, knowing that you are out of your league. So this is what Nahum's saying to them. Behold, your troops are women in your midst and goes on. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. And so what we get here is that Nineveh has suddenly become vulnerable. Has become vulnerable. And their vulnerability leads them to panic. Look at me in verse 14, right? Draw water for the sea, strengthen your floors, go into the clay, tread mortar, take hold of the brick mode. This here tells us all the different actions that the Ninevites are trying to do to fortify their defense. They are just, they lost all composure. And in the midst of this invading army, they are panicking and they're rushing to build up this, their defense, their walls, their, and they're trying to do all these things to, to try to keep, them, keep their city alive. Uh, we, we understand this. When, when, when we feel threatened, we, we feel this way. Like, I don't know for, for me, for the guys, you guys play like a tower defense game before, right? And suddenly the invading army is like crashing through. You're just suddenly building all these things out of nowhere. You don't care what you're building. You're just whatever money you have, just build it, right? Uh, or we just, we're, we, we just tend to lose composure when, when our defense fails and we become vulnerable. Or we think about just something like normal life. For instance, I remember one time I was flying home from a business trip and 
I was supposed to fly home and the next day I was supposed to go on a trip with my friends to go hiking, go camping um, out at Page. And, and so on my flight home, suddenly my plane had to make an emergency landing in Denver um, because I don't know, I forgot the reasoning. Something was something was something went wrong with the plane. So they had to make emergency landing. And so I mean I had to stay overnight there and that totally messed up my plans with my friends. And what ends up happening when your plans you know, your, your heartfelt plans are ones that keep you safe. You know, just keep the schedule. You'll be good. What happens when that fails? You start scrambling, right? I remember I was making calls. I was texting people. I was trying to figure out how to get the next flight back home. Couldn't get back to LAX in time. So I was like, okay, I'm going to book a flight to Burbank. I'll just pick up my car some other time. Like, you know, you're just trying to do all these things. You're scrambling. You're panicking. You're, you're, you're just doing whatever you can to fix the situation. This is probably what the Ninevites were doing. They were scrambling. But it's no use. Verse 15 tells us that there will be a fire that devours you. A sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. And like the locusts, locusts will come in swarms. And, it will eat. and you might be able to destroy one locust, two locusts, but the swarm will come and keep coming until they have consumed everything in the land. We see here that God, God's judgment cannot be denied. God's judgment cannot be denied. I mean, he even would use the smallest creatures like a locust to undermine the plans of man. application we get here is that any confidence in this world crumbles before the fearsomeness of god any confidence any courage found in this world can crumble before god this verse this passage here tells us that the world and its treasures all end up in vain ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2 vanity of vanities all is vanity this nothing here, nothing you do can stop what's coming from God. God will have the last word. And, and it reminds us that this world will constantly try to grab your attention. This world will constantly try to say, hey, believe in us. Believe in what we're trying to, to tell you, to teach you, to sell you. Right? We have political parties telling us to trust in them and their decisions. We have business owners telling us to trust in their products. We have scientists, doctors, specialists telling us to trust in their expertise. But when things go wrong, what happens? The world panics. The world panics. I mean, again, imagine the scenes from this past week in, in the airport in Afghanistan. Panic settled in where what can we trust in this world what can we hold on to when panic settles into your life really the only place where we can feel like there is any source of grounding a foundation of rootedness is found only in god he is indeed the rock and the safe hold, the stronghold upon which we can hold on to. In the midst of all this, this is to remind us that the church needs to lean upon God more so and become a bulwark 
even in the most chaotic times. This is what it tells us. It tells us here that nothing in this world can stand before God because God is holy and awesome and fearsome. But when we can find our rock in Him, our safety in Him, we can stand up strong. See here, see here how God again, God again has the last word. Point number three, we see then Nineveh's lack of stability. In the middle of verse 15, it says here, multiply yourselves like locusts, multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Verse 17, your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. We get here in these two and a half verses, an imagery of locusts. And the imagery of locusts here is used to describe Nineveh's rise and fall. Nineveh's rise, described in verse 16, talks about how Nineveh business flourished. Right, that the homes populated, people fill the street, they multiply like locusts and grasshoppers. And so we see here how they have continued to grow and grow and grow, both in their population as well as in their wealth, in their power. They have increased more than stars of the heaven. But what ends up happening is that when the time of destruction came, all the locusts, all the people fled away. It tells us that there was no united stand. There was no like this sense of, I guess, national pride where they stood together and said, we will stand for our nation, our empire, our city. Instead, everyone pursued their own safety and their own well-being. And they left the city to the invaders. They fled the scene. And what we see here, this picture here of how they were like grasshopper and locusts, but when the sunrise, they fly away. No one knows where they are. They kept fleeing away from these invaders. Actually matches the historical accounts of what happened during the fall of Nineveh. It was said that the Syrians fled the city only to set up camps somewhere else, trying to reestablish themselves. But as the invaders kept coming, that city fell too, and they kept going back and back, kept trying to reestablish themselves, but kept fleeing. And they ended up being eventually conquered, and then the whole empire fell. We see here that they, there is no stability within this empire no stability whatsoever because everybody was looking out for themselves and this tells us that really stability must be found in a united cause and what that gives us is that god's presence reminds us god reminds us that he is the one who stabilizes and holds and unites his people together, even in exile. That when Israel and Judah was in exile in the Syrian Empire, what held them together was their united faith in God. They were united for a cause. 
And we see here, we see an importance of togetherness, right? Nations tend to crumble over time when they lose sense of that. When they lose sense of their own national pride, they lose sense of just who they are as a people group, lose sense of what they are as a nation. Individuality actually will break apart a nation. Uh, we we kind of see this even today, again, just talking about how we understand what's going on, um, going on in our world. We, we think about the divide that we see here in America this past few years. Greater divide than perhaps we've ever seen in our history. And part of it is because we have lost the sense of God. Lost a sense of a unitedness under a higher being. And now everyone is looking towards each other. Everyone's seeking their own prosperity. It, it helps us see here that theology is important. Theology is important not just in our own understanding of our Christian walks and life, but theology is also important in how this world works. Right? Just, you know, if we just think about America. Right, and and I don't want this to be you know whole history lesson of America and stuff, but America was founded under Christian values, right? The, the the way we were used to be united together was understand that there was a higher being, so when we start creating these laws and the, the the concept of equality, right? That was that concept of equality was defined under with the understanding that we are all created in the image of God, but once we start losing that. Once we started losing the sense of God within our society, that equality still remains, but the definition changed. And now we start seeing a greater divide. You see, God and theology is important for us to stay united. And we even see this with what's going on again with Afghanistan, the Taliban. They are the jihad subgroup extremists of Islam. And while they have the wrong theology, they're still united by theology, right? This is why they can be so powerful because they're, they're united. They're, they're pursuing a cause that's higher than themselves. Theology is important. What you believe about God is important because once we understand a biblical understanding of who God is and we cling on to that and God becomes our rock and Christ becomes our cornerstone, that gives us a sense of comfort and peace even through the most rockiest times. That helps brings us together because we understand that we're in this for the sake of Christ, for the sake of God and His glory. And so when we lose a sense of God, we see what happened to Ninevites. They scattered. And that same thing can happen so easily to any other nations now in this world. And then, fourth point, none of us lack of leaders. Verse 18 to 19. And here, starting in verse 18, the king of Assyria is being addressed. Verse 18 says this, Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your herd. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom 
has not come your unceasing evil. Nahum here addresses the king of Assyria. And, and what we see here is that the leaders of Assyria, the shepherds, the nobles, they're passive, they're unresponsive. And, and so as the people are fleeing the cities, there is no one there to help them, no one there to guide them, no one there to lead them. And Nahum here is telling the king that that responsibility ultimately lies upon you because these are your shepherds. These are your nobles. These are your people. Where are you, O king of Assyria? You see, God allows tyrants and dictators like the king of Assyria to prosper for a time, but God, as we as we learned earlier in the book of Nahum, He has He is long suffering. He is long suffering, but that long suffering will come to an end, and judgment will indeed arrive. It's a reminder that during this time of long suffering, God's compassion upon sinners, even upon the king of Assyria, a dictator. A reminder that God's compassion should lead people to repentance. Should lead people to repentance. As we take a look at this end of this end of the book of Nahum, we see here that the book of Nahum ends with a question. Ends with a question. It ends in the same way that Jonah did, right? And we remember the prophet of Jonah. The prophet of Jonah was also going to Nineveh, and and wanted to warn Nineveh about coming judgment. But in the book of Jonah, Nineveh repented, right? Nineveh repented and they were saved from that coming judgment. But as God was interacting with Jonah about what happened, God also ended with a question to Jonah. And in Jonah, the question was about God's compassion and it challenged the readers to go to God for repentance. To understand that God's compassion now, today, for all of us, for this world, his compassion is meant to lead us to repentance. But take a look at this question here. It says here, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Nahum's question here. Nahum's question is about God's vengeance. And why it is right for God to judge Nineveh. This is the end. This is to tell us that that God is righteous and you are not. And the time of your repentance is over. The time in which you had to repent is over. And you will face judgment. Ultimately, all people have to answer to God who reigns forever. Though Nineveh lack its leaders, there is still one king who rules on his throne, and that is God. And what that tells us is that for all people during this time and now, before God's eschatological judgment comes upon this earth, that time of repentance is now. That time of repentance is now. And, and I'm, that means that 
right now is a day of salvation. Right now is a time at which we are to come to God and repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. If you are listening to this message, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're here visiting us and you're hearing all this about God's judgment, recognize that now is the time of God's compassion and long suffering for you. He is beckoning you to repent of your sins, to come to him, to recognize that this judgment, this judgment is coming, but you have not received it yet because you're given a chance to repent and believe in Jesus Christ today. And what we all don't want to hear, what you don't want to hear is this second question, this question that Nahum ends with, because when you hear this question, and by then it's too late. We see here that justice ultimately lies in the hands of God. His righteousness demands judgment, yet his compassion allows for mercy and repentance. And so God's judgment here brings us to realize just how much we need a Savior. How much we need God to give us his mercy and his compassion. The big idea, if I can get to the slide. Okay, thanks. The big idea is that God's justice reveals the weakness and fragility of this world and demonstrates the power and sustainability of God. Right, we, we see here how all the all worldly strongholds fall before God. But as we see the weaknesses of humankind, we see the power and strength and the sustainability of God. There is no chink in his armor. He is made perfect. And so we want to see this furthermore. We see how God's judgment reveals his character. And we see this glorious character of God in the face of the weakness of this world. And when we see here how the, the lack of defense shows us God's power because God can take down any human defenses. We see how Nineveh's lack of courage shows us God's fierceness because no matter how strong and courageous you are, when you are before God, you will tremble and be on your knees. Nineveh's lack of stability shows us just how strong and stable God's presence is because he is unwavering. He is unchanging. Nineveh's lack of leadership shows us just how majestic God is because God as a shepherd, as a leader, will never forsake his people. Even though his people are in exile, even though they are scattered, God never left them. God is with them forever. But this means so much more to us for the church as we take a look upon these characters because more so now with the church, we now have seen the character of God embodied in the man of Jesus Christ. And we come to see that when we come before God, we too will experience what Nineveh here experienced. We will too will experience a lack of defense, a lack of courage, a lack of stability, and a lack of leadership. We too will cower in fear when we stand before God. But when we have Christ, 
our Redeemer, our lack of defense points to Christ, our advocate, who defends us before God. Our lack of courage points us to Christ, our confidence, our rock, the one who gives us strength in times of need. Our lack of stability before God points us to Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, who keeps us stable, who keeps us upright through every circumstance. And our lack of leadership points us to follow Jesus, our shepherd, the great shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep to protect us. God here, in studying his judgment, we come to see that God's judgment isn't just this one topic, but it's connected to all his other attributes. We see here God's compassion, his mercy. We also saw his wrath, his holiness, but we also saw how God is the Savior. Now God redeems his people. God will bring to fruition a complete judgment against this world and her sins. And just to end the measure tonight, turn with me to Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, we see here that the reason why I'm saying now is the time of repentance, now is the day of salvation, now is the time to experience God's compassion for us, is because there is indeed a coming judgment upon this world. Now is the time to repent. And this coming judgment is described well in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 to 17, where it says this, this is the sixth seal that Jesus Christ is opening. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a squirrel and that is being rolled up and every mountain island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? We see here in Revelation 6. The same kind of lack of defense, this cowering of fear, trying to hide themselves, the people scattering, the leaders falling. We even get a similar imagery of the fig tree being ripe to be eaten up. When this day comes, God's long suffering and compassion for this world will come to a close. And when this time comes, judgment will fall. And like Nineveh, when this judgment comes, the saints, believers, us who believe in Christ, we will clap our hands over their destruction the same way the captives of Assyria did when Nineveh fell. Why? Why do we cheer for that? Because our hope is in Christ. And God's righteousness on that day will be revealed in its full glory.
And we will worship that. And like Nineveh, there is no comeback. There is no rebuttal. Their fall is final. This sinful world will indeed face its death and destruction. And so the time of salvation is now. The time of repentance is now. Where do you stand before God? Where do you stand? As we wrap up the series, we wrap up tonight, let us continue to remember that God's judgment upon this world reminds us, points us to our need for God, but it also brings us comfort. God will indeed redeem us. God will indeed create us anew. God indeed will save us. And we can find our hiding place in him. Though God indeed is the judgment upon which we must all fear, God is also the single place of peace and safety upon which we should find refuge in. So let us then go to God, the great and glorious God. Let us behold God of all of who he is, both his grace and his judgment, because all of it points to him and his glory. We just saw here how God is gloriously revealed, even in his judgment. Let us worship God, this great God. Now let us go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us so many things. That includes teaching us about your judgment, your wrath against this world. And Lord, we are, when we come face to face with your judgment, with your holiness, it, it brings us to our knees and reminds us of how weak we are. It reminds us that we, Lord, are nothing before you. But God, you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, our advocate, our strength, and our cornerstone. Lord, we can trust in Christ because he has saved us. Thank you for that. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for giving us your son. And thank you for bringing us then under the safety of your arms, being washed by his blood. I pray, Lord, that we will continue to hold on to these truths to help us be able to discern what's going on in this world around us, to discern all the different things. This world is complex and chaotic. But Lord, you are sure, you are indeed our rock. Let us come to you to know you, to find our safety in you. God, thank you for being a good God. Thank you for being a great God. Thank you for being a glorious and awesome God. Let us worship you with our hearts and our lives. Be with us in our discussion. I pray all this in your name. Amen.